final session. Is this the final session, Tim? This is the final session. I didn't want to be wrong about that and find out I just wasn't invited for the last session. (laughs) There's another one after this tonight that (laughs) no one was supposed to tell me about. Um, No, it, uh, as we come to this final session uh, of our conference, as we have been focusing upon false prophets and true prosperity, it is only right and only appropriate that as we end, that we would focus upon true prosperity. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. If you have trouble finding the book of Psalms, just go to the middle of your Bible. And you'll turn left just a little bit to find the first of the Psalms. And tonight I want to bring you a message entitled, True Prosperity. I want to begin by reading what is our passage, what will be the focus of our study and our message tonight. I think it will be obvious to you at the end of verse 3 why the title is True Prosperity. Uh, we are all for prosperity. It's true prosperity that we want, not a false prosperity. And so the psalmist here at the very outset of this book speaks highly of the prosperity that the Lord has for us, and we'll discuss later in this message what is the true meaning of prosperity. I want to begin reading in verse 1. This is God's inspired inerrant and infallible word. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Northeast of Los Angeles, on the west seacoast of the United States, is a barren wasteland known as the Mojave Desert. In its midst is the Joshua Tree, Joshua Tree National Park, so-called because of the rare tree that grows in this national park. In this dry, brown desert grows an oddity. It is known as the Joshua Tree, and that is why this national park is called the Joshua Tree National Park. It is a place where virtually nothing can grow. It is seemingly a God-forsaken place. It is brown. It is desolate. But in the midst of this desert, 
Where nothing else grows, this tree thrives. It grows to be 40 feet tall. It lives to be 150 years old. And it has many useful properties, such as it produces leaves and flowers and and food. And it stands out in this bleak environment as the only tree that grows in this brown, parched badland. This is something like what the psalmist is saying, the righteous man and the righteous woman is. That in the midst of a fallen world, in the midst of a corrupt society, in the midst of these sinful and adulterous days in which we find ourselves, we as Christians nevertheless are not merely to survive, we are to thrive. And we are to stand out, much like this Joshua tree. We are to be deeply rooted and grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to bear fruit, and we are to grow, and we are to be nourished by His Word. And we are to stand out like bright stars on a, on a dark night. And the darker the age becomes, the brighter we are to stand out because of our connection in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider this first psalm, there, there are several things that you and I need to know about this first psalm. First of all, it was not the first psalm to be written. Uh, the psalms were not written in sequential chronological fashion. Uh, the psalms were written at different periods, and they were assembled by compilers. Uh, the first psalm to be written was Psalm 90. The last psalm to be written was Psalm 126. And there is a period of 1,000 years between the first psalm that was written and the last psalm that was written. The psalms were compiled at five different times. And they form five different books that come together to form one book. It has been said that book number one is a reflection of Genesis. It is Psalm 1 through 41. And at one point, that was all of the book of Psalms that we had with Psalm 1 through 41. And then there was a second collection, and then a third, a fourth, and a fifth. And it is said that they reflect uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is an amazing book. And so Psalm 1 though it is not the first to be written, it is intentionally placed here. In fact, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, it is believed, were originally joined together. And they stand as two gatekeepers, two separate psalms, but to be linked together. No, no, that's fine, that's fine. You know, that happened to me. Um, I'm trying to remember where I was, and, and I couldn't talk louder than the person's cell phone. And we, we finally escorted her out of the country. And, uh, no, thank you. You've been so supportive this whole, this whole conference. Until now. No. <laughs> Until this very moment. So, uh, <laughs> 
She was getting report on the meeting after this meeting where you will all meet together without me. So, um, so where were we? We were talking about Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And let me show you something because they really stand as two gatekeepers so that everyone who enters into the house of the Psalms have to walk past Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as they have a very... Uh, purposeful message to everyone who enters the house of worship, and the message is an evangelistic message. Uh, You'll note Psalm 1 begins, how blessed is the man. Please note how Psalm 2 concludes, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is a literary device known as inclusio or inclusion that serves as brackets or bookends around a literary unit. That little phrase, how blessed is the man, frames these first two psalms. And in Psalm 1, the psalmist is saying there are two roads in life. There are two paths in life, not three, not four, not five, not ten. There are only two. There is the way of the righteous and there is the way of the wicked. And every man and every woman is on one of these two paths. Everyone here tonight is either on the path of the righteous or is on the path of the wicked. And that is the very first message of the entire Psalter. Psalm 2 is a strong warning to those who are on the way of the wicked. That there is coming a day when God will judge the world in righteousness, and the wisest thing that you could do if you're on the road of the wicked is to kiss the Son and do Him homage and put your trust in Him and take refuge in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are to uh, speak to all worshipers. You must not necessarily assume just because you're in the house of the Lord and just because you're in a place of public worship that you are automatically on the way of the righteous. It is to serve a purpose of, of, uh, of calling all who enter the place of worship to examine yourself, to make certain that you are on the way of the righteous. So that is why Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 find themselves in these two uh, uh, premier places at the beginning of the book of Psalms. Now tonight we want to simply look at at this first psalm and our eye is upon the end of verse 3 as we will work our way there. Now, there's four things that I want you to note about this psalm, and I want to give you the the overview before we begin to work our way through it. First of all, there will be the pronouncement of blessing. And that is in the first words of verse 1. How blessed is the man. How blessed is the woman. And there is not a book in the entire Bible and not a book in the entire world that begins in a more positive way than with this pronouncement of blessing, how blessed is the man. And then there will be the prerequisite for blessing, because God's blessing is not automatic. And to experience the fullness of God's blessing, 
verse 1 through verse 3 will give us the prerequisites if you are to enter in to the experience of the fullness of the blessing of God. And then, in verse 3, we will see the picture of blessed of blessing. What does it look like? What would your life look like if the hand of God was upon your life and pronouncing the benediction and the fullness of God's blessing was flowing into your life? And then fourth and finally, in verses 4 through 6, will be the prohibition of blessing because not all will experience this blessing. And there are those who are on the way of the wicked. So, let's begin at, in verse 1, at the beginning of verse 1, with the pronouncement of blessing. Uh, he begins by saying, how blessed is the man. This is a, a, a phrase, or close to this phrase, is used 25 times in the book of Psalms. It, it is a book that pronounces the blessing of God upon the people of God. It is a declaration of blessing. It is an exclamatory statement of fact. It is uh, an indicative statement. How blessed is the man. Now, there are several things that I, I want to draw to your attention that are either stated or are implied by this. Number one, it is implied that the bestower of this blessing is God himself. That God is the source of all blessing. That God is the giver of all blessing. James 1 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from God above. This blessing does not come from this world. This blessing does not come from the culture. This blessing does not arise from within ourselves. This blessing is a foreign blessing in that it comes from another world and it comes from the hand of a loving, gracious God upon his people. Second, this word blessed is in the plural. And it stresses the fullness of this blessing. It is an overflowing blessing. In reality, it could be easily translated, Oh, the blessednesses of the man. Oh, the blessednesses of the woman. And the idea is not that God is just measuring out his blessing upon your life and mine with an eyedropper, and they're just little drops of blessing that are splashing down on us. That's not the idea of all. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Sometimes people ask me, have you had the second blessing? I'll just laugh and go, the second? I've had every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, the fullness of this blessednesses that have been lavished upon us. Third, uh, this describes this blessedness describes really a two-layer blessing. Uh, first of all, there is the blessing of being in right relationship with God. You know what the opposite of being blessed by God is? 
It is to be cursed by God. That is the opposite. But we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the first stage of this blessing. It is to be in right relationship with God and is to be one who has been declared to be righteous in our standing before God. But it is more than that. This also speaks of the fullness of joy and the fullness of the subjective peace of God that we enjoy in our hearts. It is a peace that surpasses all comprehension. And this blessedness includes a state of well-being on the inside, of satisfaction, of contentment, of bliss that is experientially, not just a position before God, but an experience that we, that we have within our soul. Fourth, this blessednesses, or these blessednesses, is not dependent upon our circumstances. There is a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is dependent upon your happenings. Happiness is dependent upon your happenstance. If your soccer team wins the game, you are happy. And if your rugby team loses the game, you are unhappy. That, that's just the way life goes, and it is dependent upon our circumstances. If you're rich or if you're poor, your feelings are volatile if they are dependent upon circumstances. But what God is addressing here is that which transcends circumstances. Uh, It is rooted and grounded in God alone. Not whether you're in a prison cell in Rome or if you're in wilderness wanderings uh, before entering the promised land like Moses. No, this is rooted and grounded in in your right standing before God and the prerequisites that we'll read about later in verses 1 and 2. So, this is not dependent upon earthly possessions, lack of earthly possessions, having health, losing your health. No, this is something that is transcendent. This is something that rises above this world because it doesn't come from this world. It comes down from above. Fifth, it is reserved exclusively for believers in the Lord. In other words, how blessed is the man and only this man. How blessed is the woman and only this woman. And then sixth, this is precisely how Jesus began his greatest sermon that he ever preached. This Jesus, as he began the Sermon on the Mount, he begins really almost as an echo chamber of the beginning of Psalm 1. How does Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus obviously had been riveted and focused upon this psalm because Jesus begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be fulfilled or satisfied. What Jesus will, will, how he will begin uh, the first discourse we have by our Lord is uh, a replica of what we read here. This is the pronouncement of blessing. There is no greater life than anyone that anyone could ever possibly live than to have this blessing to be pronounced upon your head. For the invisible hand of God to be extended from the throne of grace and for His hand of blessing to be placed upon your trembling head and for God to impart the blessing to your life at the very deepest epicenter of your soul that it would be well with your soul, that you would know joy unspeakable and full of glory, that you would know the favor of God in your life, that you would be content in life, what the world would give to have the very blessing that has been pronounced upon you. You may be discouraged here tonight. You may be downcast. You may be deflated. You may be defeated. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I want to remind you that if you are a believer in the Lord, God's blessedness has been pronounced upon you, and it is more real than the food that you eat and the water that you drink. It is more real than the seat that you're sitting in tonight. It is the reality of the blessedness of God that brings peace like a river, that brings joy, that rises up within your soul, that brings the goodness and the favor of God upon your life. This is the pronouncement of blessing. Now second, I want you to see the prerequisite for blessing. Because there are degrees of experiencing this blessing. Some enjoy the, a greater portion of blessing from God than others. And he now tells us what must be true in our lives for the greater enjoyment of this blessing. And what we see in verse 1 and verse 2 is a pattern of Christian living. What we will see in verse 1 is that there must be the putting off of the old, and in verse 2, the putting on of the new. In verse 1, there is a negative separation from the world. And in verse 2, there is a positive saturation with the Word. In verse 1, there is a disassociation. In verse 2, there is an association. And this is the heads and tails of the same coin. There must be a separation from and a separation unto in order to experience within your soul the fullness of this blessing. And if all you have is verse 1 in your life, a negative separation, it will in due time lead to legalism. 
You will be known by the negative. You will be known by what you have separated from and no more. If all you have is verse 2 without verse 1, it will ultimately lead to antinomianism, which is living your life without any, um, without any law. So, let's look now first at the negative separation. After he says in verse 1, how blessed is the man, you will note there are three negatives. You will see the words in your Bible, not, not, and nor. These are the most positive negatives you will ever find. Because these negatives will keep you from the destruction of your life. Do you know that every negative commandment in the Bible is simply God saying, do not hurt yourself. Do not destroy your life. What a loving thing for God to say that. And that is like a parent saying to a child, a little infant, do not lick your finger and stick it in the electrical socket. Don't do that. It'll be a shocking experience for you. (laughs) Do not take your hand and put it on an orange-red glowing uh, oven surface. That will hurt. And that is what God is doing here through this anonymous psalmist. He is saying, not, not, nor, so that you do not destroy and hurt your life. So notice what he says. It's a threefold. He begins with beliefs. He, he, he begins with your mind. He, he begins with your thinking. And that's where everything begins in the Christian life. It doesn't begin with your emotions. And that is often one of the more shallow parts of your existence. It, it begins in your thinking. It begins in your mind. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So, notice how it begins. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. God's bless, the experience of God's blessing necessitates that you refuse worldly thinking. That you refuse worldly counsel. That you refuse secular worldview that you refuse all uh, ideology that puts man at the center and says that all things are from man and through man and to man, to man be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You need to stiff-arm that and plug your ears and walk away from all kinds of the counsel of the wicked. It is secular humanism on steroids. Then second, he moves to behavior. From beliefs to behavior. Because our behavior flows out of our beliefs. Uh, You tell me what you believe and I will tell you how your life will go. In fact, that's what the word believe originally meant. By live. What you believe, you live by. And so he says, second, nor stand in the path of sinners, that to experience the fullness of God's blessing, you must refuse to stand uh, with in sinful activities. You must not run with the world 
in their pursuit of sin. So we must stay away from the path of sinners and not stand in the middle of such sinful activity. Then third, your belongings, who your associations are, who you hang out with, who who you are closest to. And he says, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You must refuse close company and close, close ties with those who mock God, with those who ridicule holy things. You need to saturate those relationships with your absence. And you need to remove yourself. You know why? Because the Bible is a whole lot smarter than we are. Because the Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. You think they're going to be your mission field, but if you're not aggressively after them with the gospel, you're going to become their mission field. And their influence is going to wear off on you. Now, do not misunderstand. We are to be in the world. This is not an excuse for us to go buy some land and hole up and start a, a, a Christian compound or a Christian uh, little cell group up in the mountains someplace, and we are totally removed from the world. That is not what this is saying. This is the last thing that that is saying. This is saying that as you and I are in the world, And the Bible does say, go therefore into the world. The Bible does say, go into the highways and into the byways and compel them to come in. We are to penetrate the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of us. While we are to be in the world, we are not to be of the world. Our boat is to be in the water, but there's to be no water in the boat. We are to be out in the midst of the world making a difference for Jesus Christ. There is no reverse gear in the Christian faith. It is forward, forward, forward into the world. But as we do, we must not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This blessed man refuses to adopt their thinking. He or she refuses to embrace their values, refuses to enter into their path, refuses to to sit in their seat with them, and refuses to laugh at their vulgarities. This blessed man does not abuse his Christian liberties and does not push the limits of his freedom in Christ so that he can see just how close he can get to the fire without being burned. No, this blessed man guards what he allows to come into his head, and he guards what he allows to come into his soul, and where he allows his feet to trod. There must be this negative separation from what J. Vernon McGee would call stinking thinking. Just this worldly ideology, this worldly philosophy, this worldly secularism, It will eat your lunch, and it will rob you of the fullness of the blessing that God has for you. 
In fact, if you fill up your mind with worldly thinking, it will displace the experience of the blessing of God upon your life. That's exactly what verse 1 says. You can hold it up, turn it sideways, turn it upside down, read verse 1, however you want to read verse 1. There is no other way to read verse 1. You're going to have to live separated living in the midst of the world. Now, second, not only this negative separation from, but now a positive saturation with. For notice what he says in verse 2. But, this now is sharp contrast, and this now goes in the other direction, in a positive direction. But his delight, whose delight? This blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. You see, he has a new heart. And God has written his law upon the tablet of his heart. And God has given him a love for his law. That's just one of the identifying marks of any blessed man who is right with God. This one delights in the law of the Lord. Uh, His heart is in another world. His heart is in another place. He has new affections. He's not forced into the Word. He flees into the Word because he loves the Word of God. And note, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Please note this verb is, present tense, constantly, not just Sunday morning. It's Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday, throughout the entire week. No matter when you pick this book up, no matter when you read Psalm 1, it is always in the present tense that our delight is constantly and continually in the law of the Lord. This law of the Lord leads us into the deeper knowledge of God. This law of the Lord tells us about our God. It tells us of what He has done on our behalf. And the more that we read in the law of the Lord, the more our heart skips and rejoices and is flooded with uh, satisfaction because we are taking in the Word of God. And He says, and in His law, He meditates. You see, it's not enough just to delight in it, we must dwell upon it. Uh, we, must, we must meditate. Th- this word for meditate is a Hebrew word that really is, it could be interpreted as a, a moaning sound. Have, have you ever read the Bible and just gone, mmm, 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 mmm. That's the idea here, that it's more than just in front of your eyes. It is settling down into your very soul, and it excites you, and it thrills you, and you contemplate it, and you turn it over in your mind, and you reflect upon it, and you contemplate it, and you process what it says. And as you do, you are internalizing the Word of God into the very fabric of your life. It is settling down in every portion of your innermost being. You are meditating upon 
the Word of God. And it enables you to set your mind on things above and not on things of this earth. Your greatest joy is not in this world. Your greatest joy is in another world where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And notice he says, day and night. And in his law he meditates day and night. That's another way of saying 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Whether you're awake or whether you wake up in the middle of the night, you are delighting in the law of the Lord. It is like saying all day, every day. It's a habitual lifestyle. It is a constant reference point for you. The Word of God has become like a a template through which you see all of life. You interpret everything that is going on around you by referencing the Word of God. It is the Word of God that is framing every situation and framing every circumstance in, in which you see life. It is the Word of God that is a lamp under your feet and a light under your path, and it is guiding you through this dark world. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to his word. Thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God is like the gas in the tank that is driving the car of your life. That is the primacy and the centrality of the word of God in the blessed man. Now, if you're not into the word of God as you ought to, I must tell you there will be forfeiting some of the fullness of the blessing of God in your life. Because what God is doing in your life is inseparably bound with the ministry of the written word of God in your life. It's not a mystical experience. It's not some little seance or or some nuance of an experience. It is the objective word of God in your soul and in your life. In fact, I will go on to say, your Christian life will not grow one inch beyond your intake of the Word of God into your life. You will not live up to the fullness of the Word of God in your life. None of us can live up to the full measure of what we know, but your Christian life will not advance and not mature one iota beyond the intake of the Word of God in your life. So you may ask me, How much of the Word of God do you think I should have in my life? I will in turn ask you, how much do you want to grow? Uh, How much of an experience of the blessing of God do you want in your life? You go first. Your answer to that question will answer my question to you. Will answer your question to me. So, there must be this, this positive saturation of intake of the Word of God. Let me put it to you this way. The experience of this blessedness is is not an automatic thing. If you are determined to walk in the counsel of the wicked, if you are determined to stand in the path of sinners, if you're determined to sit in the seat of scoffers, I promise you, there will be a significantly less experience of the blessing of God in your life. Because when sin moves in, joy moves out. And in order for joy to move back in, the Word's going to have to move back in. So we see the prerequisite of blessing. So before we move on, let me ask you this question. Where are you in your Christian life as it relates to verses 1 and 2? 
as you look at your life, what influences are there from the world in your life? Other people, other voices, books, literature, television, music, entertainment, concerts. What, what influence is there flowing into your life from the world? Uh, you young people, what kind of influence is there from the world? Computer, internet, from the world, encroaching upon your mind and upon your heart. What, what correction do you need to make tonight? What firewall needs to be put up around your soul that keeps out these ungodly influences that are coming into your life and are stripping your soul bare of the fuller experience of of this blessing of God. And I also want to ask you, tell me about the intake of the Word of God into your life. How much do you delight in the Word tonight? How much do you meditate upon it? Do you memorize it? Do you process it through your thinking throughout the day? Does it continually guide your thought life and direct your steps as you live your Christian life? There is this prerogative for your soul to prosper in the Lord. Now, third, the picture of blessing. What would this look like in your life for you to be separated from the world, for you to be saturated with the Word? What would this look like? And this psalmist is a master teacher. Not only does he tell us, he shows us. And he now will paint two pictures for us of this life of blessing. Um, He says, first, that we will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. He's painting this picture upon the canvas of our minds. And I want you to note first that this tree, number one, is transplanted. It's transplanted. He, this blessed man, will be, please note the certainty of this, not could be, should be, might be, He will be. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the adversity, no matter what the trouble, no matter what the tribulation, no matter what the trial, no matter what the storm in life, He will be. First of all, like a tree, which is unlike unlike the wicked in verse 4 who are like chaff. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Now let's talk about this for a moment. That means this is a transplanted tree. It didn't start by streams of water. It had to be planted by streams of water. That means it started out somewhere else. And by way of analogy here, it is reasonable to assume that it started out in a wilderness. It started out in a dry and barren place. 
And someone came along because trees do not transplant themselves. Someone came along and uprooted this tree that was growing someplace else and picked it up and moved it by streams of water and planted it right there. You know what this is a picture of? This is a picture of the new birth. This is a picture of regeneration. This is a picture of sovereign regeneration that God by His mercy and God by His grace came to us when we were living in a barren place, in a desert land, as we were, uh, as we were dying, God came and He uprooted us and He brought us to a much better place and planted us by streams of water. That's what God's done in your life if you've been born again. Can you remember what your life was like once where you were? You may have even been in church. You may have been a morally good person on the outside. Or you may have been running with a gang and running with a bad group of people. Whatever it was your background before you were born again, you were in a desert place. And God, by His initiative and by His grace, God came and moved you and planted you in His Son the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says by streams of water here, the picture here is of the sufficiency of grace flowing into our lives. Would you also notice that the word streams is in the plural? <laughs> it would be enough if it was just a stream. Just one stream is more than enough for any one tree. To, to set down its roots and to pull up the needed uh, water and to pull it up and transfer it into sap for it to go into its branches and to produce fruit. But what this says, it's not just a stream. It is streams, plural. Many different streams. And it speaks of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It speaks of the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks of the overabounding grace of God. Listen, there is more than enough grace flowing into your life that no matter what drought may be going on in the circumstances around you, if you have set down deep roots into the Lord Jesus Christ, you have more than enough grace, not just merely to hang in there, not merely just to hold the fort. You've got enough grace to grow and develop and mature and thrive as a Christian and to be prosperous and to bear fruit. Think about this. You're one little tree of, in your life. And there are streams just gushing, flowing past you. Above the surface of your life, it may be a drought. It may be a dry season. Uh, the circumstances may be withering above, the, above ground level. But down below the surface, you have a secret resource that others cannot see, but it is there, and other Christians have the same secret resource. These are underground streams of water that continue to flow even in the, even in the most difficult, hot 
seasons of your life, you have more than enough grace to enable you to continue to live in a way that brings honor and glory to God. You have set down roots in underground reservoirs of the all-sufficient, all-sustaining, all-strengthening, all-satisfying grace of God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Sometimes people say, oh, I just can't keep going on, and I want to pastorally say with a word of encouragement, oh, yes, you can. Because wherever it is God has placed you, there is more than enough grace in these streams of water right where God has planted you. And you may think you cannot go on, and I know what that feels like. We've all been at a place like that. But it is in those times in our lives we come to a deeper experience of what it is to lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and to thrive in those difficult times of life. So, first of all, this tree is transplanted, firmly planted by streams of water, but second, and I've already used this word, but second, it is thriving. It is transplanted, and it is thriving. And please note what he goes on to say, which yields its fruit in its season. This speaks of its productivity. This speaks of the different seasons of life. This speaks of times when you're on the mountaintop and other times when you're in the valley. This speaks of times when you're going through adversity and other times when you're going through prosperity. It speaks of the full spectrum of life, but whatever the season you find yourself in tonight, whether it's an uptime or whether it's a downtime, this says these streams produce in this transplanted tree fruit in its season. This fruit is Christian character. This fruit is, is Christian virtues. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. In reality, this fruit is Christ-likeness. So, whatever season you may find yourself in tonight, if you are a Christian, God has transplanted you by these streams of water, and the sufficiency of the fullness of Christ in your life is more than abundant for you to be yielding fruit in its season. Now go on. He talks about its constancy. He says, and its leaf does not wither. This tree is an evergreen tree. It is always vibrant. It is always green. It is always lush. And when other people at work or in your family or in your school are dying on a vine... When, when the circumstances in their life are just suffocating them and they are just withering, you, this says, your leaf does not wither. You remain strong. You remain full of spiritual vitality. You remain uh, in a spiritual state such that you do not wither, whether it is in time of sickness or in health whether it is in a time of poverty or of riches, 
whether it is in a time when you have just received a child into this world or you have buried a parent. Wherever you find yourself, this says that you and I as this tree are able to bear our leaf and, and it does not wither. Now note what he goes on to say in verse 3, and in whatever he does, that means at work, at home, at worship, in the church, out on the field, in whatever he does, please note it says he prospers. Now here's the real prosperity gospel. We're not against prosperity, we're just against false prosperity. Here is true prosperity. Whatever he does, he prospers. What does this word prosper mean? This word for prosperity means to accomplish the purpose for which something is created. It means to fulfill the purpose for which something is intended. Your purpose is to glorify God in everything that you do in life. Whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, you are to do all for the glory of God. That's why you exist. That is why you are alive, why you were created, why you were here to bring honor and glory to God in heaven. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And God has created you for a task. God has created you to do something here on the earth. Uh, he has created good works for you to walk in. There is a vocational call upon your life. There is a parental call upon your life. Uh, there are many different aspects of the call of God upon your life. Uh, Why you are here, there's a ministerial call of God upon your life. And as you are here, you glorify God by serving His purposes for your life. And that is what true prosperity is. Uh, you're not drying up in days of dr uh, drought. You are growing taller. You are bearing fruit. You are spreading your branches. You are deepening your roots. Your main, uh, you, you, you are, uh, your leaves are not withering. This is a picture of your life. I'm holding up a mirror right now, and you are seeing yourself. That this isn't referring to some remote Christian that you've never met. Uh, this is not speaking of some super saint on the mission field somewhere. This is not simply about someone who lived 3,000 years ago. You are looking into the Word of God. This is your life. You are a tree that has been transplanted by streams of water. And if you will separate yourself from the world, and if you will separate, saturate yourself with His Word, the fullness of what He is speaking of here in verse 3 will be your real experience. So what a glorious thing it is to be a Christian. Can you imagine a better life than this? I mean, this is buy low, sell high. I, this is as good as it gets. 
If I had a thousand lives, I'd give every one of them to the Lord Jesus Christ. I wouldn't hold back a one for myself. What, miss out on this? Now, this is the greatest way that any person could ever live on planet Earth. This is the picture of blessing. I want to ask you, are you fulfilling the purpose for which God has placed you here upon the earth? I did not ask you, are you on the earth? I am asking you, are you fulfilling the purpose for which you are on this earth? And your job description is to glorify God and to bring honor to Him. Uh, Your job description is not to be self-absorbed and to be self-indulgent and to be all wrapped up in yourself. It's been well said, a man all wrapped up in himself makes for a very small package. You are to be consumed with the glory of God. Your entire life should be a reflection of the character of God and bring honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life needs to be consumed with expanding the kingdom of God. And that begins with right where you are, blooming where you're planted, being the very best father, the very best mother, the very best son, the very best daughter you can possibly be, to be the very best employee, to be the very best employer. And if you are a student, to be the very best student that you can be with the intellectual ability God has given you, and for you to honor God in the way you conduct yourself, and to find your ministry, and to find the way that you serve God, and to pour yourself into the, into the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there may be some other things added after that, but that is where you start. And that is what true prosperity is, for you to accomplish the work that God has given you to do. Now, finally, I want you to note the prohibition of blessing. Because by total contrast, the psalmist now describes the polar opposite of the blessed man. This is a complete antithesis of the blessed man. I I, I love the psalmist because he paints pictures in black and white. That there is no gray. There is no fence straddling. You're either in or out, one or the other. You're either a saint or an ain't. No other way. So, so look now, and I just want to make sure you're still out there. Uh, look at verse 4. He says, the wicked are not so. The opposite of the blessed man is the wicked. And the wicked is not blessed. The wicked is cursed. God is not for him. God is against him. God does not smile at him. God is angry with him every day. God is angry with the wicked every day. And when he says the wicked, it refers to the totality of his life. It's total depravity. It's a radical corruption. And the The word order of this sentence literally reads this way. Not so the wicked. This not so leaps off the page 
the blessed man is this, this, and this, and this. You come to verse 4. Not so the wicked. Is he blessed? Not so. Is he joyful? Not so. Is he fruitful? Not so. Is he prosperous? Not so. He may look successful. He may look like he has his act together. He may, he may look like he has everything going for him, but God's diagnosis is not so. Not so the wicked. He may, he may seem to be uh, so, so whistling through life, but not so. In reality, he does everything that God forbids in verse 1. His entire life, he does walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does stand in the path of sinners. He does sit in the seat of scoffers. And please note the downward spiral of this. His entire life is lived on the slippery slope. He goes from bad to worse. He starts off merely walking in the counsel of the wicked, but then he slides down to a lower level, and now he's standing in the path of sinners. But then the next thing you know, he has taken up a seat, and he's just not walking or standing. He's got a place at the table with the ungodly. This is the downward progression of sin in a person's life. They always go from bad to worse. They are always devolving, never evolving. And so he says, not so the wicked. And he has another picture to paint for the wicked. But they, referring to the wicked, are like chaff, which the wind drives away. You've got to see the scene in this. In ancient times, a man would have a field, he would sow the seed, and when harvest time would come, he would gather in the grain. On the, whatever would be the highest point on his, on his farm, he would build a threshing floor up high. He would lay stones, and that would be the threshing floor. And he would take his harvest, and he would carry it up to the threshing floor. He would have a pitchfork, and he would just toss it up in the air, and the wind would be the strongest at the highest point where the threshing floor is. And the heavier uh, kernel would come straight down, and that was the valuable part. That's what he would gather and take to market and sell and make his living. But the chaff, the, the chaff is just absolutely worthless. Uh, the chaff has no weight. Uh, the chaff has, has no value. No one wants to buy it. You can't sell it. You can't eat it. You, you, it's good for nothing except just to burn. And so when he tosses the, the wheat up in the air, the good part comes straight down because it's heavier. There is a, a weightiness. There is a, a gravitas. And that represents our lives. But the chaff is so lightweight that the wind just blows it away. And it represents the spiritual lightweights in this world who have no anchor for their soul, who have no gravity or gravitas about God in their life. They're just frivolous. They're, they're just like the, the wave of the sea tossed back and forth. 
They're not attached to anything. They just bounce around from the latest idea to the latest concert to the latest teaching over here, and then they bounce back over here, and you just see them being blown about by the wind. They never drop anchor. They never settle down in a church. They never are rooted and grounded in sound doctrine. They're just blowing in the wind. That's all they are. They are spiritual lightweights. There, there, there is nothing weighty about eternal things in, in their life. And so they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. They, they are separated from the kernel. And in the end, unsaved husbands will be separated from their wives. And unsaved teenagers will be separated from their families because the wind of judgment will blow on the last day and there will be this great separation. In verse 5, he says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. This does not mean they will not appear in the judgment. You can write it down. They'll appear in the judgment. They will not stand in grace at the judgment. They will not stand with divine acceptance at the judgment. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment because they will be swept away like the chaff. The hot, blowing wind of God's vengeance will blow them into the furnace of hell. Then he says, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. No, there will be this separation and there will be no sinners in heaven. They will not gather in the assembly of the righteous. Now, right now the wicked live together with the righteous. And they work together with the righteous. And they often worship together with the righteous. But on this last day, it will not be so. There will be this great separation, and the tares will be separated from the wheat, and the good fish separated from the bad fish, and the foolish virgins separated from the wise virgins. No, there will be this great separation on the last day. And there will be no blessing. There will be no prosperity. There will be no favor upon the wicked. So to bring this psalm now to the bottom line. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Please note this does not say the Lord knows about the way of the righteous. It says he knows the way of the righteous. It's a Hebrew word that means to be intimately involved with. It it means to have a, a close relationship with. And while the Lord is removed from the wicked, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Of course He knows the way of the righteous. He planned it. He ordained it. He built it. He paved it. He travels it with us every step of the way. Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And if you are one of the Lord's righteous ones here tonight, I want you to know the Lord is so intimately involved in every step of your journey through life. He will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. 
He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is with you. He is in you. And you are in him. And wherever you go for the rest of your life, you are never alone because the Lord is with you. But the way of the wicked will perish. It will suffer destruction. It will suffer ruin. It will undergo eternal punishment. This does not mean annihilation. It means the devastation of destruction. To be ever dying, yet never dying. If you would turn over to Psalm 7 for a moment, we'll bring this to conclusion. There's a series here of verses in Psalm 3, verse, excuse me, Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Listen, it's not smile. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He is angry with the wicked every day. He has indignation every day. Look at verse 12. If a man does not repent, he, God, will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow. God has bent his bow and made it ready. He, God has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. And as Spurgeon said, when God fires his arrow, he never misses his target and strikes at the very heart of the sinner. And they are judged and they are damned and they are cast down into the torment of those who perish forever. Look at Psalm 9. If you would, Psalm 9 and verse 5. 5 and 6. You have rebuked the nations, referring to the unconverted nations, to the ungodly nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. In other words, they will so perish and so be destroyed that the world cannot even remember them because they will be so submerged in judgment. Verse 6. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. Psalm 11, verse 4. Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he, God, will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. This is the prohibition of the blessing. There is not one drop of blessing. 
of redemptive, saving, sanctifying, satisfying blessing to be upon them. There is not one drop of grace, saving grace, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. So which describes your life tonight? There's not a third option. I will assume that for most of us here tonight, you are this blessed man, this blessed woman, and it's your delight in the law of the Lord that has brought you here tonight. It is your love for God and love for His Word is why you're here. If that is true, I want to encourage you that God has pronounced His blessing upon you. It is like the oil upon the head of the high priest that is flowing down, filled with fragrance, and the goodness of God's blessing has immersed your life. I want to remind you, you cannot flirt with the world. You cannot court the counsel of the wicked. You cannot stand in the path of sinners. And God forbid that you would sit in the seat of scoffers. And if you do, it would be with great detriment for your life. Instead, I want to encourage you to plunge yourself into the law of the Lord. It is good. Delight yourself in it. It is sweeter than honey. It's more valuable than silver or gold. And enter into the fullness of what God has for you. You will be like a tree planted by water. And you'll bear fruit and your leaf will wither. And whatever you do, you will fulfill the purpose of God for your life. If by chance... There's no such thing as chance. If by providence you find yourself here tonight and you're aware that I've never been born again. I've never become a new creature in Christ. I've never walked through the narrow gate. I want to plead with you tonight to go no further without Christ. To turn to the Lord. To call upon His name. To seek the Lord while He may be found. To call upon Him while He's near. And to hear the Lord Jesus reaching out to you tonight through Psalm 1, inviting you to come to Him. And as Psalm 2 says, for you to come and to kiss the Son and to give Him homage and to bow down before Him and to say, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. You will find that him who comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. He's come into the world to save sinners just like you. May you turn to him and call upon his name. And he will gather you in and receive you to himself. And your life will be dramatically and radically changed. 
If you have never called upon the Lord, I, I urge you tonight, even as we would conclude this conference, we will never all be together in one room again, just like this. While the Lord is near, call upon His name, and He will save you, for He is a Savior of sinners. Let us pray. Father, thank You for the true prosperity that is ours in Christ to fulfill the very purpose for which You have created us, which is to glorify You. Thank You for the fact that for most of us here tonight, You have transplanted us out of the barren wilderness of where we once were and have now placed us by streams of water. Lord, it's beyond our comprehension that You would work in such an undeserving way toward us. Would you bless each and every one here tonight? Would you place your hand upon them and pronounce yet again your blessing upon their bowed head? And may they know the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the fullness of the sufficiency of your grace in their lives. May your grace truly abound in them. And whatever circumstance in which they find themselves here tonight, may their leaf not wither, and may the fruit come that you so desire in their life at this time. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.